Good morning, church. How you doing? Doing all right? Good to be with you. Darren is out visiting his grandma, uh, and so he says he misses everybody, but uh, I get to have the opportunity to preach today, so I'm excited. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John 3, 1 through 10. We're picking up uh, still in our series, and so the title of today's message is Children of God. So whose love has marked and changed you? Whose love has marked and changed you? In 1 John 3, 1 through 10, John invites us to see the out-of-the-world love of the Father and how it can change us. It's a love that changes us from spiritual orphans to children. It's a love that gives us a hope that's worth living for. Well, how do you know that you've received the love of the Father? Family resemblance. Children of God desire to live in love like their Father. Read with me as we're going to dig into this passage. Verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. So the passage breaks down in, in two broad points for us today. So the first one we're going to look at is the love of the Father. The love of the Father in verses 1 through 3. And then the next part is family resemblance in verses 4 through 10. So the first one is the love of the Father. When you get this question asked, what is God like? There's lots of ways to describe it. Right? I mean, God is creator, but one of the primary ways that the Bible describes God is as father. Right? And that's what John articulates here. He says, behold, look at the love of the father. Right? And most of the time, you know, this word father is used uniquely and specifically. You know, yes, God is the father of all and that he's created all, but God is uniquely the father of those who have placed faith in Christ. And Jesus teaches us even more what this relationship is like, right? When he says, Abba, Father, he teaches us to pray. And that Abba, it's a, it's a word for daddy. It's this form of endearment, of personality, of relationship. And oftentimes we gloss over that. We think, of course. And we forget how offensive and how drastic that is. For Jews, for Muslims, to even think of calling God daddy, that kind of intimacy and personality and relationship is offensive that you would treat God that way. But yet Jesus says, no, I am bringing you in to see God as Father. And what kind of Father is God? 
Right? Oftentimes, we have a mixed uh, bag with our own experiences with our Father. You know, uh, our earthly fathers are broken or sinful, and sometimes we project onto God as Father what has happened to us. And so, the Bible says, let God define his fatherhood. And what is the defining characteristic of God's fatherhood? It's love. It's love. He says, see, behold, what kind of love the Father has given the primary thing that defines God the Father is the way that he loves. And it's really, you can translate this as, from what country, from what world has this kind of love come? It's otherworldly, it's out of this world, the kind of love that, come, that comes to us through the Father. I heard this definition of love, and it's always stuck with me, that love is a commitment of the will to the ultimate good of another person. Love is a commitment of the will to the ultimate good of another person. And this is how the Father loves. It's not a whimsical or passing love, but it's a commitment to our good. It's permanent and unfading. He's committed to our good. This is why we are called to fix our eyes on it. Right? He says, behold the love of the Father. Seeing leads to being. It leads to imitating. And so he says, I want you to fix your eyes. Constantly be remembering, pausing, resting in this love that the Father has given us. It's this otherworldly, out-of-this-country kind of love. When I got married, um, you kind of share things in marriage. Uh, my wife loves plays, and I was just uncultured, didn't watch plays, didn't, you know, like had no desire for plays. She got lots of fish. So, you know, I, uh, I love the fish, and so I'm constantly bringing fish in. It's just part of what marriage is. You learn different things. And so the first play that she kind of warmed me up as we were getting on our, you know, uh, play, uh, you know, future is that she said, we'll watch Les Mis. And so if you haven't watched Les Mis, watch it. It's really good. But Les Miserables, it's set in about 1862 and during around the French Revolution, and it's the story of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was a, uh, a prisoner. He was uh, put in prison because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his sister, and then he ran away, and he got sentenced to more time, and finally he is released, right? The movie kind of opens up with him being released, but nobody will give him a chance. Nobody will give him a job. Nobody will give him a place to sleep. And so after a couple days of freedom, he finds himself on the doorstep of this church, sleeping at night. A bishop comes up upon him and opens the door and welcomes him in. And he says, we don't have much, but what we have, we have to share. And so he sits Jean Valjean down, and he gives him something to eat. He gives him something to drink. He gives him a bed to sleep in for the first time. And Jean Valjean, as he's going to sleep, he sees one of the nuns putting away the most precious things that the church has, their silver, their silver plates, their silver cups, all of these things. He sees where she puts them. And so in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and he goes, and he takes all the silver. He steals all the silver, thinking that this is going to set me free. I'm going to finally have enough to give me a new start. And he runs away that night. Well, the next morning, uh, the next day, the police find him, and they drag him back before the bishop. And they say, we found the thief. We've brought him here before you. He had the audacity to say that you gave him this silver. And the bishop turns to the police and says, I commend you for doing your job. But he has spoken the truth. I gave him this silver. But friend, why did you leave at such an early hour and forget the best? You also forgot these. And the bishop goes and he takes the silver candlesticks, the most valuable piece that they had. And he says, you also ought to have these. 
and he releases him and frees him from this life of imprisonment that he would go and face. And he turns to me and he says, I've purchased your life for God now. Use this to become an honest man. And you see the next scene that Jean Valjean has this inward struggle, right? He, he wrestles with himself and he begins to be broken by this love and this grace that had been shown to him. As he can no longer be marked by his hatred and by his bitterness, but instead grace has purchased him and has changed him from the inside out. And forever, in all of his decisions, he reflects back on the love that was shown to him. This is the kind of love that the Father gives us. It's this kind of love that etches in at our soul and changes us from the inside out that we keep coming back to as we go throughout our life, thinking, how does this define me and move me and change me? And so this passage, it talks about some implications of this love, of how it has changed us. And one of the first ways that God's love has changed us is that it has made us children. Right? He says that you should be called children of God, for that is what you are. Right? The, the Bible talks about that, you know, as we mentioned, that God's fatherhood is unique. It's specific to those who have faith in Christ. It's not for everyone. You see, sin separates. We were born under sin from our earthly father, Adam. And this sin has separated us, made us spiritual orphans. But yet God the Father has come, and he has given his best. He's given everything. Not only did he create us, but then he repurchased us through giving us of his only begotten son. He says, these are my wayward creation. They have rebelled against me. They've made themselves kings in my place. They've sinned and spat in my face, but yet I will, I will give them my best so that I would purchase them back. And he comes and he buys us back. And we see this all throughout. And he says, the only way that you can become a child of God is that you have to be born again. Right, John 3, Jesus comes, and Nicodemus, this uh, ruler, this religious ruler, comes to him at night. He's you know, kind of scared to come to him in the day, lets people figure out what he's up to. Comes to him at night, and he says, Jesus, you've got to be a teacher you know, from God. And, uh, and so Jesus starts to talk to him about the kingdom of God. And he says, Nicodemus, you don't understand. To even see and understand this kingdom, you need to be born again. And he says this all over the place. John 1, 12, he says, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. In Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. In Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Father's love is seen by giving his Son that all those that would place faith in him would come and be adopted into his family. And it's this adoption, it's this becoming a child of God that changes your identity. It changes who you are. And therefore, when it changes who you are, it changes what you do. And so what most identifies you? When someone asks you who you are, when you think about this is what identifies me, what do you think about? Do you think about your parents? Do you think about where you've come from? Do you think about what you do? Do you think about your status? John would urge us, think about something deeper, something truer, something that cannot be stripped from you, that you are first and foremost when you have faith in Christ, a child of God. The next thing that he says that if you're a child of God, there's implications for that, right? You're going to be like your dad. And so he says that it will separate you from the world. One of the implications of being a child of God is that it informs where you belong. It informs where you belong. John says the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. 
right? So being like God, being you know, made a child of God means that we're going to follow in our Father's footsteps. And so if there are people that don't know God, if there are cultures or things that don't recognize or acknowledge God, they're not going to recognize or acknowledge us. The Bible speaks of these different forms of evil, right? It talks about sin, you know, it defines this lawlessness, this rebellion against God, saying, I reject what you say, God, and I'll establish what I say. You know, iniquity, this inner brokenness or bentness that we have, it describes it as the world, Right? And what is the world? The world is this conglomerate of broken people that have set up systems and ways of thinking that are, in a, that are, that are opposed to God, opposed to his kingdom and his way of thinking, his way of living and, uh, and of operating. And then we have Satan. Right? Satan is this spiritual being that it impersifies evil. And so the, First John talks about all these, but he says that you will not belong in the places that oppose God. The institutions, the cultures that set themselves in opposition to God— they won't recognize you as you pursue Christ. But let me pause here for a second because sometimes people think that this justifies them being a jerk for Jesus, right? They, you know, they just, they think, well, people don't like me and so therefore I'm following Jesus. Listen, your sin might make people not like you, not the fact that you follow Jesus. And so just because you get persecution or you get feedback or certain people don't like you doesn't actually validify that you're following Jesus, the reason that you get rejected should be the reason that Jesus got rejected because he followed the Father, because he showed compassion to people that didn't deserve compassion, because he upset the rulers and authorities, because he was faithful to God's kingdom. And so we see that it isolates us from the world, which is a good thing. But on positive note, it says that you shouldn't seek affirmation and belonging in places that aren't recognizing God, but instead there's a place that you do belong. There's a place that you do have a home where you will be affirmed and recognized and validated, and that is with God and with his people. That there is a place for you, and this is something that we desire at local church, is that we would dig in and we would create this kind of community, a place where people are known and loved, where they're accepted and affirmed. So the next thing that the love of God gives us is it gives us hope. Right? If you have experienced persecution or alienation in this world, you start to long for change, right? I wish that things weren't this way. How can we change things? And John goes on to show that the Father's love, it gives us hope that things will be better, that things will actually change in this world. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Christ is coming back. He will appear again. And this second appearing, it leads to transformation, right? Seeing him will lead to being like him. We shall see him in glory, and it will also lead to our glorification. Man, what a, an amazing day that we hope for. I think about this day often, and it leads me to, to continue to fight against sin. As you think about the sin that you struggle with, Right? The wrestling that you have between doing what you know it honors the Lord and fighting against the selfishness and pride and lusts of this world. And we think about that day where it will be stripped from us. And there will only be one simple, single desire, and it will be to please the Lord. And it will be one of freedom and of joy and of peace. This is what he says. He says, we long for this day where sin will be entirely stripped not only spiritual sin, but, but our bodies. He says there will be renewal and healing. We will be set free. 
He says this in Romans 8, 23 through 25. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly, right? We, we wait, we long for it as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is a hope that is sure that is steadfast. And it's something that we constantly are fixing our minds. It's a hope that God the Father in love has given to his children. And this hope, it's not just something that we wait for out there, but it has present implications, right? That hope presently purifies us as we live this life here and now in the world. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You notice our, our hope isn't an event. Our hope is a person. Right? Our hope is found in Christ. He is our hope. And as he comes back, our hope will be realized. And so he says that this presently purifies us. Right now, as we live, that hope purifies us. So what does it mean to purify something? Well, have you ever drank water that's unpure? Right? You ever been to Mexico or someplace and you drink water? It doesn't really go well with your body. Why? Because there's certain things that hurt it. Right? It's not purified. It's not clean. And so, too, he says this hope, it's like a filter. It filters things in our life right now as we live. It helps us to filter out lies and deception so that we would live for what matters and what is true. And so let me just place this filter over a couple lies that we tend to believe and show how this hope purifies us here and now. One of the lies that we're tempted to believe is that we only have one life and so we need to live your best life now. Right? What is this? accompanied by it's accompanied by selfishness that i need to live for me right now that if i don't live and have my best life right now then i'll never get it and so it leads to to selfishness right it leads to to pride it leads to the inability to sacrifice or give because it's about me and our culture is constantly pushing this narrative that life is about you and it's about your happiness it's about your pleasure and you need to get it now our hope says otherwise. Why? Because it says that no matter how good this life is, the life to come is better. It's so much better than anything that you can have in this life. And this is, man, this is good. This is so good because it is a frame that we see all of our experiences through. Whenever you have an experience that is amazing, that is joyful, that you just long to have it again, what this does is it, it filters and says how much better is what's coming. How much better is what's coming than this? And it says that your best life wasn't in the past. It wasn't your college days. It wasn't your young married days. Your best life isn't going to be your retirement. There's something that is so much better than all of that. And what does it lead? It, it gives you the ability to deny yourself. It gives you the ability to say no to things now because you know that there's something better. So I'm a financial advisor, and a lot of times I, I help people like you know put together retirement plans. And one of the things that people struggle with is not spending money now because it'll grow to be something bigger later, right? Is that you have to learn to say no to something right now. I have to say no to purchasing this because guess what? In the future, it's going to be better. It's going to be more if I put that to better use. And man, this is what it's saying. It's saying there are times where God's going to call you to say no to something because it is going to be so much better. And so it filters through the selfishness that says life is about me and I need to live for me right here and right now. It empowers us 
to live for others. The next lie that it filters out is that change in our world is found through political power. Right? That, that change is found in our world through political power. And so often we are tempted to think that what happens in the White House is ultimately what's going to dictate this world. But the Bible says that, and, and what we see in history, is that sometimes Christianity has thrived when the leaders are most opposed to it. When you think about how Christianity thrived in the middle of Caesar and Christians being persecuted, it says, that, listen, what we're longing for and what we desire is not a kingdom of this world. Right? It's the kingdom of heaven that comes breaking in and through. And so change is not primarily found through political reform. Now, don't be wrong. We're called to steward our vote. We're called to think wisely about it. And our vote is not insignificant. But to think that God's kingdom comes through political change is not what the scriptures teach. I mean, you read Revelation. Read Revelation, and you see Christians are being slaughtered and John has this revelation from Jesus, and the heavens are peeled back, and he sees what God is doing. That in in the midst of all of this political chaos, that God is still sovereign, he's still working, he's still bringing his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so it helps us to filter through that. And a big part of that, too, is that it helps us to have grace in our conversations towards others. That, and when we're, we're in the season, it helps us to see that people are not the enemy, Right, Because so often, and especially as we put this filter through polarizing issues, and that's kind of the next thing I want to frame this through, is that we live in a culture right now that is always one or two sides, and if you don't take one of those two sides, and if you don't take this side, you're on that side. And so our hope, it filters through, and it says, listen, the problem isn't people, it's sin. People are the priority, and it reframes how we engage with people. It brings empathy, and it says, first, you're not going to solve the problem. The, people, the person that heals and saves is Christ. And so the way that you do that is by listening, showing compassion and care, understanding. And so it, it filters through these things, and it brings in peace and grace and humility as we learn how to engage. We're not called to ignore the truth or to ignore engaging or using our minds critically, but it really helps us to understand that People are going to be what lasts forever. So we've seen God's fatherly love, how it makes us children, how it separates us from the world, it gives us a hope, and how that hope purifies us here and now. So how do you know if you're a child, though? Right? How do you know? Because John is really emphatic about testing. He's constantly screening out things. Now, we probably, most of us, I'm not sure, are fans of tests, but tests do one thing. They clarify where you're at. You know, they show you the reality of whether you're there or not. You know, they're kind of a bar of determining. And so John, throughout this book, is constantly laying these tests to filter out. Why? Well, because there were a group of people that were coming in and that said that they were Christians but weren't and were deceiving others to follow them in lies. And so he's wanting to do two things. First, he's wanting to encourage genuine believers, people that actually know that they're a child of God. He wants to encourage them. He doesn't want them to doubt or not have confidence in their status but he's also wanting to filter out people that are deceived, that think that they're really children of God but aren't. And so how does he filter that out? How, how do you know if you've received the love of God? Family resemblance, right? You, you will look like your father. 
Now, there are certain things that, you know, I, I look at my dad, I'm like, yeah, as I grow older, I'm like, there's certain resemblances, you know, and even more as I am a father now, I see it in my son, Theo, I'm like, man, he is stubborn, and, uh, and he loves the water, and he can get out of anything, you know, like, as far as, like, he'll rationalize his way out of anything, and so I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm there, and so you start to see yourself, we did a paternity test, you know, like, he's going to show up, and so he says that there's certain things that we will look like our father, we just can't help it. It's part of our DNA. It's created in us. And it's also formed by being around them. And so, there, how do we know that we look like our Father in heaven? Well, I mean, right? It's not physically. I mean, it's not like we can look in a mirror and say, yeah, I really like God today. Right? right? It, it's, it, he lays down and he says there's two clear things that we can see if we resemble the Father. There's one that will practice righteousness. And two, that we'll love our brothers. So first, that we will practice righteousness. And John says this both in negative and positive ways throughout the passage. And just let me read because he is emphatic. I mean, this passage is all about understanding this in verses 4 through 10. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In verse 9, by this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 10. So first, negatively, John says that if you are born of God, that you can't continue to practice. You can't keep on sinning. Now, at first glance, and maybe at second or third glance, these verses are extremely convicting, right? I mean, you think about like, I think I'm a Christian, but man, there's still some times that I mess up if you're honest with yourself. And so what is John saying in this? He's saying that, he's not saying that because you, once you become a Christian, you never sin. I mean, he would be contradicting himself. Back in 1 John 1, 8, he says, anyone that says that they haven't sinned is a liar. And so he, he puts us in this place where, okay, if you say that I don't have any sin, that was something way in the past. He goes, you're deluding yourself and you're just a liar because everybody sins you know even when you come to know christ you still have brokenness that is manifesting but he says there's a difference though your life will no longer be marked by habitual unrepentant sin you see you can no longer do the things that you used to do you you will find in your life a, a constant change and so what this looks like how, how does a christian approach sin well, we know that we still sin, but we know we can't walk in sin. We can't continue to practice it. And so it looks like humble confession of sin and constant repentance from it. Let me say that again. It looks like humble confession of sin. Are you confessing your sin? Do you have someone that you actually acknowledge your brokenness to, that you can receive the grace? Because when we, when we don't confess sin, then we're robbing ourselves of the grace that God wants to give us. God wants us to find a place where the gospel can be experienced. And that gospel is first and foremost as we acknowledge our brokenness and then receive the grace of God for us. And that's what it looks like to repent of it, right? We first acknowledge this brokenness rather than hide it or deny it. We, we say, this is what's going on in my life, and we bear it forth. And we say, but this is not what identifies me. This is not who I am because Christ is what most identifies me. And we change our mind as we welcome God's grace in. You see, this isn't something that we, we participate in this, but this is something in a mark that has already been done in us. And he says this because he says, you have received God's seed. God's seed abides in you. Therefore, you can't do this. 
right? He's not calling us to say, listen, just try harder. What I really want from you is just try hard at fighting sin. Don't get me wrong, we need to think of sin as war. But at the same time, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that there's something that has changed in you because God now lives inside of you that makes it impossible for you to continue to be satisfied in doing the things that you used to do. Your appetite has changed. No longer can you find satisfaction in the things of the world and the things that you used to do. But instead, it, it begins to taste bitter to you. And he says that because God's seed lives in you, it starts to change the foundation of your life. Now, that, that, that metaphor of a seed, he uses it all the time. I mean, the Bible is constantly full of this metaphor of a seed, right? God's kingdom is a seed. The gospel is like a seed. And it says that it comes in. And when you think about a seed, it's seemingly small, insignificant, right? You can, you know, throw it. But a seed's power is in what kind of seed it is. I mean, if I put like a dandelion seed underneath a piece of concrete, it's probably going to die. Maybe it'll find a little crack and kind of like weed up a little bit. But if I put an oak seed underneath that, that oak seed is eventually going to shatter that concrete. It's going to break it. Why? Because it's got the power of an oak tree inside of it. And as it starts to grow, it starts to reframe everything around it. And so John's saying, what kind of power is in a God seed? That God puts himself inside of us. And it starts seemingly small and insignificant. But as it grows, it reframes and reshapes the entire landscape of your life. The strongholds and power of sin that it once had begin to crumble as God's seed and his power move into those areas of your life. And it reframes. You can no longer practice sin. And so what he's saying, he's saying, have you received God's seed? Are you being born again? Because if you are, his power is going to be moving in your life. It's going to be transforming your life. And so that's the... Negative, positively, he says, listen, God's not just about stopping you from sin. That's not his goal. I mean, yes, he doesn't want you to sin, but he's got a higher ambition. That's for you to actually practice righteousness. If you actually do what is, is right. And it's so important that we realize that doing what is right is not what saves us, right? He says, you first receive God's seed. You first become righteous by being his child. And once you have become righteous, once you are adopted as his children, your identity changes you and changes what you do. It changes who you are. And this leads to acts of righteousness, doing what is right. And it, it starts from this desire. It changes what you long for, what you desire. So a couple things of what does it look like to grow in righteousness? Well, what it looks like practically is that you're going to have a growing realization and a confession of your sin. And we see the Apostle Paul who, throughout his life, sin got larger and more serious to him as he grew closer to God. I mean, right? He's in Romans, he's like, I'm the greatest of all sinners. And sometimes I'm like, Really, Paul? Are you sure about that? You know? But he knows his own brokenness because the glory of God and the holiness of God have come closer. But it, not only does it magnify his sin, but it magnifies God's grace in his life. And so it, it looks like us confessing and realizing sin. And this is so important because what does that do? It brings humility. The, the people of God, we should be marked by humility and a realization that we aren't better than other people. And this passage is marked by if you cannot look and say, it is a miracle that I'm a child of God. There should never be any of courseness when someone asks, are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I was raised up in church. There should never be an of courseness about your understanding of your relationship with God. It should be an awe and a miracle that God would save someone like you. 
And so it brings humility, it brings grace in our interactions with other people. It makes us far less judgmental as we realize the sin that we've been forgiven. Growing in righteousness, it looks like practical compassion towards those that are hurting. Is your life marked by practical acts of compassion to people that are hurting around you? Whether it's the poor, whether it's the broken, whether it's the disadvantaged, does it look like practical acts of compassion? And this can look like generosity, right? Generosity of time, of money, of your gifts. Are you, is your life becoming more and more open with what God has given to you? Or is your life being marked more and more by holding on to things, being afraid and stingy and selfish? Increased, you know, practicing righteousness, it, it looks like an increased desire to pour into people. A realization that this life is not about me, but instead I want to spend my life pouring into the people around me. A desire to make disciples. It looks like a growing obedience to Christ, especially when he calls you to do things that are hard, right? Because it's, it's really easy when he says something that you're like, yeah, I wanted to do that already. But what about when he puts his finger on things that you say, I don't know about that area, Lord. I, that door was kind of closed for me. I'm not sure that I'm ready to open it yet. Growing in righteousness looks like, there's always going to be those issues, but it looks like learning to trust and saying yes more than we have in the past. A growing ability to say yes when God asks us to do hard things. And so, yes, there, there is an effort in this. Yes, I mean, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but I want you to hear so much is that it's not primarily something that you are being called to do as much as it is realizing it's something that God is doing through you with his spirit and his seed. There's something in a sign that God is working in you. It's he will do it. So we see that one of the signs that we resemble our fathers, we practice righteousness. And the second one is that we love our brother. Right? John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One of the signs that we're born of our Father is that we love his children. We love other Christians. We love people that love God. I always find it really ironic when people are like, yeah, me and God are cool, but yet they don't know any other Christians, right? They don't know any other Christians. They don't love any other Christians, right? And life is entirely marked around them. And I'm like, hold on a second. Like, don't you have to, like, know people to love them? Like, I mean, it would be really weird if I'm like, yeah, I love my wife, but I never see her, talk to her, or know anything about her. But I love her really a lot. I mean, right? You'd be like, wait a second, something's off here. But yet we think that way. Like, do we actually know and engage with anybody else that loves God? Because Jesus gave his life for his people, right? I mean, like, he said, I love my people so much that I'm going to give up everything for them. And so you would think that when we follow him, we would love the people that he loves. We would share his mindset and his heart. My wife and I, have, uh, we started watching this uh, show called Alone. It's on the History Channel, and it's about uh, 10 people they send out into the wilderness with like 10 items, and they just see how long they can last. It's really interesting. They send them like, you know, like, uh, you know, Vancouver Island and Mon uh, Mongolia, and then like the Arctic, and they send them all these different places. And it's really interesting to see how different people respond. You know, they're out there surviving and trying to build shelters and, you know, not get eaten by bears and all, the, all this, like, really interesting stuff. But it's interesting to see what sends them home and the effects of isolation. Because you see, as it goes on more and more, that we were not created to be alone. 
And it becomes so clear, so evident, as they long for just an embrace, for just a hug, for just being close to someone. And it shows that God made us to be in community. God is in community himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has made us to be in community. He says, you become like me. You become, we become like God as we lean into each other, as we grow together. And listen, it's not easy because we're still broken, right? I mean, you got issues in your family. We're going to have issues in the church because we are broken people. But we commit by God's grace to fight with each other, to serve with each other. And, and this is what God says will change the world. You want to know God's mission, his way to change the world? It's the local church. Right, the church is his idea. We didn't create it. I mean, when Jesus came down, he could have done political reform. I mean, right? That's what the zealots wanted. The zealots said, "Listen, come overthrow Rome, shut this thing down, make Jerusalem a world leader." I mean, that's what they were. That's what they were all hoping for, and Jesus didn't. Instead, he said, "You know what? I'm going to use to change the world. This ragtag bunch of twelve disciples. You guys, you're my mission to change the world." And he invests in them, and you see, from them starts to spread this movement that begins to reframe and re, you know, shape the entire world as we know it. And so he says, listen, this community is his plan to change St. Pete. It is communities like this, places where we love each other, where we belong together, where we fight and encourage each other to be on the mission of God, where we sacrifice together. And this, this requires all of us. It's not something that just leadership can do. It's not something that just a couple people can do. It requires all of us leaning in together, saying, I'm going to choose to be known rather than be on the fringe. I'm going to choose to love other people rather than sticking in safety. And as we do this, we showcase the beauty and the glory of God. People look in and say, I want relationships like that. I want people that are willing to know me and love me like that. It's hard, but it's good. It's worthy of our time and our effort. And so as we close, I just want to invite you Join in with us. Help us to build that community that people would come and see what it can be like to be born again and to have grace and love to differ but still show patience and grace as we talk through our differences. Let's pray. Father, we know that we need your grace and that you, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope, Lord, that you have made us children of God if we will trust you. And so I, I pray for local church, I pray for us, God, that you would help us to lean into each other, we would love each other practically, that we wouldn't just settle for a Sunday morning for a house group, but instead we would, we would choose to open up because it requires us being intentional with each other, to actually reach out to know other people and to actually open up our lives so that we would be willing to be known. And so help us to do that, to fight for that, because we know that it is your means of changing this world. We love you. Amen. Thanks, driver. That was awesome message this morning. <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but as I read through these verses this week, I was just super convicted. And that reoccurring sin thing, it's like, oh, man, that, that's, I got that figured out. I call it my signature sins. I don't know if you guys have any signature sins, but, but it's that one that we're really good at that we just keep doing over and over. And um, I read in, my, in, this, in the margin of my Bible this week as I was reading, I had seen some notes from a previous message that I'd heard from one of the pastors, and he said, be thankful if you're struggling with sin, because that means you still recognize sin in your life, and you're still remorseful, you still need forgiveness. 
And so as we close today, I just kind of wanted to share with you a couple of verses from Paul to the letter or to the Philippians. And he just kind of gave some general encouragement and some advice, which I think is really good for us to keep in mind on how we can overcome temptation. He says in uh, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, he says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you've heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Have a great week, local church.